Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, the only podcast standing between you and a Mad Max-style dystopia. My name's Dorian Linsky, and this week I'm joined by two of our regular contributors. Roz Taylor is Research Manager at the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, where she fights the good fight for real news, not fake news. Hello, Roz. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Dorian. And a big story turned up in the Truth, Trust and Technology uh, region. Charges have finally been brought against some Russian nationals for interfering with the American presidential election. Are we any closer to discovering if similar things went on here? Uh, no, not really. Um, <laughs> reason- we get Mueller to just do a bit on the side? Well, the reason, the reason for that is, is actually because it's not really about ads. Um, Facebook wants to make it all about ads and who bought ads, and they said, oh, actually, very few people bought ads. Uh, certainly a few Russians uh, bought ads trying to influence the election. But... Uh, it turns out that, as we know, the Internet Research Agency was doing much more interesting stuff and coming up with all kinds of fake stuff and impersonating other people. So it's, that makes it doubly hard for Facebook to actually cough up the data. Is that like our friends in the, is it the European Research Group? The European Research Group. The two yeah. are Sin- completely Sin- unconnected. No, unconnected, but, but it's, it's, a, it's a very sinister word, isn't it, if you see if we would research in it now? It means everything you want. It does it's in my job title, hell. I mean, it presupposes yeah. that people can do research. That's, what, that's why I was <laughs> beware of research. We also have Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Welcome back, Ian. Hey, thank you very much. Are you all giddy with excitement because there's another UKIP leadership contest? No, I am overcome. Yeah, overcome Who are the bright excitement. young things that we ought to be putting our money on? No, there are no bright young things. I think the average age in that party is... 95 or something like that. I mean, Batten, uh, Joe Batten's in charge right now as interim leader, although the truth is there is nothing else but an interim leader for UKIP at the moment. I mean, he's off the scale weird. I mean, he's... The stuff he said about Islam, you know, it's a death cult. If you look at him on Twitter, he can't really control himself in any way. He's emotionally extremely incontinent. And you just sort of wonder just how long will this guy make it? And it also reminds you of what you know, Farage did really well, which is always know where the line is. He took it all the way up to that line, but he always made sure you don't quite go over that line. And that's one of the things that all of his successors in UKIP have really, really struggled with. Yeah, they've gone for more of a sort of freeform racist improv <laughs> approach, haven't they? <laughs> Jazz. <laughs> just like, I just, I'm just going to try something. And that voice you heard there was um, our special guest. We have to be on our toes today because we've got an actual giant of real radio on the show with us. It's very tempting to ask him to host the whole thing. (laughs) James O'Brien hosts a daily phone-in show for LBC where he fills a succession of lively calls for members of the great British public who speak as they find, don't suffer fools gladly, call a spade a spade and really love Brexit. James's patience, knowledge and remarkable capacity to keep his temper have made him a Romaniac hero on air and on YouTube. We're delighted to have him on the show. Hi, James. Welcome oh, to Romaniac. Thank you very much for having me. It's what lovely to be here. What do the callers want to talk about today? Because I know it's, Corbyn, it's not just better. Corbyn the spy. Corbyn the spy was the story today, although I, I find myself a lot more interested in what went on at the, the dinner that David Davis left negotiations early to mm. come back to London and have with Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail, <laughs> or indeed Paul Dacre's regular private dinners with Theresa May, or indeed Rupert Murdoch's regular private dinners with Theresa May, because I'm weird, seemed to me to be more interesting than a cup of tea that Jeremy Corbyn had in public at the actual House of Commons with a spy des- described by his own side as a complete liar. But spies, James. But spies. spies. But, but obviously spies. <laughs> You know, on, on the way here today, uh, as I walked, walked through the streets, 
Soho checking Twitter. The polling coming in for the council elections and London in particular is uh, it's apocalyptic. So I'd been a little bit puzzled by the timing of the Corbyn story because you know how it works. The phone call comes in. We need a bit of help, do a bit of heavy lifting. Is that Tony Gallagher, editor of The Sun? Yes. What nonsense would you like us to print on your behalf today, <laughs> Prime Minister? And But why now? Because she's not going to call another snap alert. But if you look at what's going to happen in London, you understand why Corbyn has been pulled out of this ludicrous box at this point. And I suspect the next thing we'll see is probably they'll, they'll be getting Zach Goldsmith's racist dog whistles out of storage soon as well. Mm. Great band. Mm. They are. One of my, one of, I like their early stuff. <laughs> I, <like> their, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your show does have a, a broad remit. I remember when I, when, I, when I sort of came in to kind of to see you in action. Um, is you wrote an astonishingly kind piece about me, which doesn't necessarily Im- <laughs> sort of impregnate us against accusations of echo chambers. <laughs> <laughs> But when I was there, actually, what what we were talking about, I think, was uh, was sort of parental leave, and it was a very kind of, you know, it was a very sort of warm, open kind of discussion. Yes. How much does uh, Brexit intrude? Nowhere near as much as people who 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 know me chiefly through the viral clips would think. So the the viral clips are wonderful, and I talk about Brexit whenever I want to, and and. Um, I don't think I talk about it too much, but the, the the show is essentially what I find most interesting in the world today. And there'll be lots and lots of days when that isn't going to be Brexit because nothing's happened. So mm. today's programme was quite harrowing, actually, because we were talking about the case of Alfie Evans, this little boy in Liverpool who is on life support. And the judge decided yesterday that the doctors will prevail over the parents and the life support will be turned off. And... and We've managed to build an audience now where I'm unsurprised to tell you that, that three different mums and dads rang in who'd been through an almost identical experience, completely at random. We don't book people. So that kind of stuff mm. is, is probably more important to me than some of the more knockabout political stuff. But, of course, it's, it's, you need to do both. Yeah, people like the gladiatorial of stuff. Of course they do. And they also yeah. like to see silence, if you know what I mean. It's when people, you can hear them going, oh, my God. I've no, I've, but this is, I've been getting away with this down at the pub for the last 27 years. And there's this sort of lazy Farage-flavoured soundbites about control. And all you have to do is ask people what words mean, I find. Not to give away any secrets. <laughs> just ask them what, 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 does, what words yes, yes, mean. What does political correctness mean? Yeah. And someone who uses it 400 times a day has never actually stopped to wonder what it means. And when they do, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be talking to James Moore throughout the show. But first, we have some big news. Romaniacs has been nominated as Best Podcast in the Broadcasting Press Guild Awards, the annual awards chosen by TV and radio critics. We're up against Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd's Reasons to be Cheerful, John Ronson's Butterfly Effect, and Hip Hop Saved My Life with Ramesh Ranganathan. Fantastic. And it's the first time they're choosing a Best Podcast, so cross your fingers for when the awards are announced on 16th of March. I I would argue (laughs) that because these people have plenty of exposure and uh, lucrative careers in <laughs> politics and media <laughs> that the kind thing to do would be to give it to us but I don't want to I don't want to sway anybody I think logically sound as well it's the only really logically sound option anyway later in the show we hope you enjoyed the 20 year break from widespread political violence in Northern Ireland because normal service could well be resumed after Brexit key extremists have decided the Good Friday Agreement is now surplus to requirements who needs it also can new anti-Brexit party renew prize enough remainers away from their political homes to make a difference and who are artists for Brexit. Plus, what was that ultimatum to Theresa May from the European Research Group all about? 
We'll get into all that after a few announcements from Roz. We're recording this particular show before our debut live show in London on Thursday the 22nd of February. So by the time you hear this, we may already have split up due to musical differences. I, for one, am going to be very upset if Dorian doesn't play Don't Stop Believing by Journey, which is personally my anti-Brexit anthem. But plans are afoot for the next Romaniacs Live, and the best way to get tickets is to support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Pledge a few pounds a month and you'll get early bird access to tickets plus those sought-after Romaniacs t-shirts, mugs and bags. Most importantly, you'll get our undying gratitude and you'll get to feel like George Soros in a very tiny but worthwhile way. Find out more at Romaniacs.com or just search Romaniacs Patreon. Now, can we interest you in a foaming pint of Brexit news? First up, peace in Northern Ireland, that old thing. (laughs) Faced with the fact that a hard border with the Irish Republic and the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement are incompatible, but freedom of movement and soft borders won't satisfy the Brexiteers, so it's like that bit where you've got to get the the fox and the grain and the... (laughs) Monkey? I don't know. (laughs) You've got to get them all across a river. Um, Significant Leave MPs have squared the circle by deciding we should get rid of the Good Friday Agreement altogether. Last week, hardcore Brexit MP Owen Patterson wrote in The Telegraph that the collapse of power sharing in Northern Ireland shows the Good Friday Agreement has outlived its use. Propellerhead Tory MEP Daniel Hannan claimed the 1998 agreement had flaws and that the deal represented a bribe to two sets of hardliners. And the Irish Deputy Prime Minister condemned the wretched Kate Hoey as reckless and irresponsible for saying the agreement was unsustainable. Ian, is this as irresponsible as it looks? Yes, it is. Um, I don't don't think it's sort of planned, really, or organised. I just think it's just... You break the seal by one person being prepared to say it. They just feel, you know what, we can all just come in on this now. There's no other possible reason why they would be doing this right now if it wasn't, for obviously, for the Brexit issues. There's this sort of quite deafening silence about why they're raising it. It's as if, oh, just out of nowhere, by the way, I've got a few thoughts about the Good Friday Agreement. You think, no, what you're trying to do here is, is sacrifice something on the altar of your quite crazed ideological project. And that must be clear now. However, it's not being taken up by government. So we had David Davis after a speech this week was asked about it and sort of pushed it away. I mean, government so far has held the line there. But just the fact that they're saying, like I was, I was trying to communicate this to, to an Irish radio station yesterday, where they were just obviously just aghast at yeah. the kind of things that are being said. But it's just like, to, to reassure you, we are aghast as well. And we're aghast pretty broadly. Like, it's, you know, there's plenty of Brexiters out there who are just like, no, 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 this is, this is beyond the pale. So it is just as bad as, as it looks. It is absolutely appalling. But I think the only reasons for us not to get too nervous about it is the fact that it's not being repeated by government and that it doesn't seem to be part of of an actual sort of plot. May was supposed to have sorted this out back in December. There would be frictionless borders between the UK and all its EU frontiers, a bespoke arrangement for Ireland, and in the case of no deal or hard Brexit, Northern Ireland would effectively remain in the customs union and single market. So what happened to that idea? Oh, well, it's a load of... It's just bullshit. Okay, so the stuff in December is a series of words that don't have any legal or constitutional or trade meaning. So we say full alignment. Full alignment doesn't mean anything beyond the political meaning which you project onto it. So the reason that they could sign it and move away was to just go, well, look, we'll sign this thing and then we'll tell everyone it's going to be okay. Now it just sits there, this massive ball of fudge right at the heart of the Brexit process. The real danger to it is not this stuff. It's the fact that the EU is currently drawing that up into some kind of legal text. Yes. Now that, which was supposed to be coming out later this month, now looks like it might be more like March, is a real danger to the government. I'm not sure how you do write it up. I said this to Steve Pearce, the sort of EU expert in almost everything, who's completely fantastic, and sort of said to him, well, how would you do this as a lawyer? Like, how would you write this thing up? He was just like, lawyers should never be asked to look at something like this. <laughs> this is not for their eyes. This is the naughty stuff that mummy and daddy get up to in the bedroom upstairs, to which the door must always be closed. Mm. And to translate that is, 
in itself a profoundly political thing to do. And if they come back with a legal translation that actually is about genuine regulatory alignment, as we would understand it, which is to say it would be customs union membership, single market membership. Supervision. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, membership of agencies. Yeah, you would absolutely blow the, the Tory party in half. Having said all that, there are problems. <laughs> Upsides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Having said that, I mean, to play devil's advocate, which I wouldn't normally do, but, but there are big difficulties with the Good Friday Agreement. These Brexiteers are not the only people to have criticised it. It's just that it's the first time that they've started criticising it because previously they haven't had any interest in criticising it. Mm. If you think about the Good Friday Agreement, it's not working. You know, Northern Ireland, they haven't been able to govern themselves for months and months and months. And it's just the process of trying to get it together has just fallen apart again. The institutions are not working. And the institutions are what what the whole Good Friday Agreement puts so much emphasis on and making those institutions work. Because one of the big criticisms of the GFA was that it didn't try to change anything profound about Northern Ireland. There wasn't enough of an effort at reconciliation. When they signed up to the Good Friday Agreement, neither Unionists nor Sinn Féin had to stop saying that they thought to Northern Ireland should be basically theirs. And that is one of the big problems. People are still being educated in Catholic and Protestant schools apart. Mm. There has not been any kind of cultural reconciliation. Things have got harder rather than, you know, in, in terms of the political dialogue. But... None of this, you know, Brexit is not the time to come along and use this for your own hard Brexit ends is, as Ian says, that's the reprehensible thing that's going on here. I mean, a lot of the problem that we've had over the last few months with the complete collapse is I think the, the blame can be laid at the door of Downing Street for a lot of us. I mean, partly the Northern Irish, Northern Ireland office is just a, a complete catastrophe. It's got no talent in there, doesn't seem to have any urgency in there, doesn't seem to have any competence in there. The fact that the Prime Minister has flown out on the assumption that a deal is ready to be signed and then the deal is not there to be signed, you just think, like, what on earth are you people, like, what is she doing Yes, there? well, it, she went to the palace, didn't she? Persuaded that she had the DUP in her pocket already and then came back from the palace, having told the Majesty that she was going to form a government to discover that they hadn't actually done the deal with the DUP. So May's got form on this. And do you know what the recurring factor is in what both of you have just said? It's the DUP. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. There is a, an incalcitrance about their behaviour. Mm. People forget that when power sharing began, it wasn't the DUP and, and, mm. and Sinn Féin. It was the UUP and the it's an acronym central today and the SDLP, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was much more moderate and even the alliance positioning. Was in there as well. But yes, yeah. so so you're right. It has hardened. It has become more polarised. But the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom has given a billion pounds and the balance of power in Westminster to one of those intractable mm. factions. I don't know if. She'd managed to get over the line in June with a with a um, in the last election. I beg your pardon with a a working majority. I don't know that that this would have become the issue that it's become with with the DUP because they must just feel they're on Viagra, aren't they? Politically now, mm. this is this is astonishing for them, and they're sticking it to Sinn Fein at every opportunity. Who really only wanted that the cultural recognition of the Irish language, which doesn't strike me, admittedly my surname's O'Brien, but it doesn't strike me as, a, <laughs> as an insuperable obstacle. It doesn't strike me as, a, as, as a, you know, an unreasonable request. That's the DUP's complete instinctive yes, reluctance to accept anything to do with the fact that Ireland might actually be in Ireland. Yes. You know, I mean, but there, but, but, and yet they seem to be making it more likely every week, don't mm. they, in some ways? I mean, this, is, this will be the thing that unites the North, will be the resistance <laughs> of Brexit eventually, mm. I imagine. You see, even after the election... There was a sense that she could have handled it. Mm. She could have at least put some independent, highly authoritative figure in charge of these things instead of pretending that Number 10 could have any role in how this thing operated. When it plainly could not, there was no way that it could be treated as an impartial observer. So the way to do it, 
even after you've done your grubby little deal, was to say, well, look, I picked this guy, he's, you know, completely impeccable, sort of, you know, blah, blah, and on he goes. And so they didn't even do that. And mm. again, that comes down to the Northern Ireland office. So I think if we're in a position where we're starting to blame all of the incompetences, the various incompetences of this government on the kind of peace treaties that were arranged by people who really did make it work back in the day, I think that's a very, very dangerous spot for us to be in because they won't be able to survive if it has to live up to the standards that are being set by Theresa May. And you have that slight fear in that knowledge that Gove was opposed to the Good Friday Agreement from the start, mm. uh, seeing it as, as capitulating to terrorists, which is both, I think, historically and politically bovine, but powerful line. If, if they did need to weaponize the Good Friday Agreement, Gove's done quite a lot of the groundwork already, possibly. Mm. Yeah, Brexit does enable a lot of these kind of long-standing kind of grudges and hobby horses to come out to play, doesn't it? Yes, it really mm. does. And, and, you know, great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Brexit. <laughs> Next up, if you're a frustrated Remain voter who refuses to vote for either of the major parties because they're tied to Brexit, you could soon have another option. A new explicitly anti-Brexit political party, Renew, launched this week with a promise to field candidates across the country at the next general election. Inspired by Emmanuel Macron's En Marche, Renew wants to bring in people from outside politics to reinvigorate the centre ground. The plan is to pit Renew candidates against MPs whose Brexit stance doesn't match their constituents and put pressure on them to change their minds. Our producer, Andrew Harrison, went to the launch and asked Renew's co-founder and head of outreach, James Clark, do we really need a third party? I think the, the situation in, in the UK in 2017 and 2018 now is, is, is quite unique. Um, if you see Labour splitting itself over, over Europe and over left versus moderates, um, if you see the Conservatives uh, splitting up over, again, moderates and, and Europhobes, um, uh, a, a Lib Dem party that's, that's becoming you know, increasingly decrepit. There is a, a vast vacated area in the centre of politics that matches the, the sort of vast disaffectation that much of the population is, is experiencing following the referendum, whether they voted for or against. So it looks like a, a golden opportunity for people from outside politics to, to step in and, and make a difference. What would you say to the people who would say that, well, this is essentially going to split whatever Remain vote there is, that we ought to be channeling it towards the Lib Dems, whatever their failures, if you want to vote for a party that's pro-Remain? Yeah, look at, look at the result of the 2017 election. The, the Remain vote was split between, uh, uh, mostly with Labour, slightly with, with the Conservative, both parties who are, who are pro-Brexit. The, the result proves that you really need a new party that can corral the Remain vote in a much more sincere and effective way than, than the Lib Dems ever, ever managed. There are Tories who will never, ever vote Labour and vice versa, but they might vote for a, for a centre party that, that, that perhaps more resembles the Labour and Conservative of, of recent years than the ones that they feel obliged to, to vote for uh, in, in 2018 and beyond. A lot of people have thought about launching new Remain parties before, usually late at night on Twitter, before regretting it in the morning. <laughs> but Renew have actually done it. They've got about 200 volunteer candidates. They're embarking on a listening tour of towns and universities. There's a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? I don't know. I mean, I can't really see it working in time for the local elections, which will be when it's most useful. It's not really useful in a general election because you just start splitting things up. Mm. But for local to send a message, you know, for instance, to Labour, if like you've got to mm. toughen up on, on, on the Brexit stuff, it, it could work. But it's not going to work in this kind of time frame. I just can't see that from happening. It more seems that it's just there's so much demand. And that's where these sort of faintly ludicrous late night Twitter decisions come from. Just There's so much pent up demand from a big chunk of the country, maybe a minority, but a big minority chunk of the country 
country, which has no political representation whatsoever. So obviously that's there, but the kind of timescales that we're looking for, it doesn't really work. And then when you think of the Brexit process itself, the horrible truth about Brexit is that, sort of ironically enough, its solution and its execution are both elitist projects. What really matters is how MPs vote on that final deal. And it's not until if there might be another referendum that it might turn into something broader. When we talk about protests, when we talk about new political yeah. parties, the truth is it's, it's the kind of thing that's sorted out in Whitehall and in Parliament. They're, 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 it's, it's like a maypole, though, isn't it? People feel that they want to dance and there's nothing to dance around at the mm. moment. The Liberal Democrats tried to provide that platform and for, for reasons I don't fully understand, that, that just hasn't moved the needle at all. The machine is missing from, from Renew, I presume. That, that, the, the simple, you know, on the stump, uh, the leafleting, the, the, the really boring stuff that, mm. that Jeremy Corbyn is at his happiest doing, but which most politicians leave to activists and, and local... Um, council candidates. That, I just don't see how you fight. It's, it's like going up against uh, the, the, the empire with a catapult, isn't it? Is it that, that's um, what would worry me. Maybe. I mean, I think now it's, 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 it's a lot easier than it used to be because before it used to be, you know, leafleting on the doorstep, all that mattered hugely, matters less now. Because and I think, yeah. yeah, and I think you saw that happen with Macron. You know, everybody said there's always going to be the Republicans and the Socialists on one name or another, and, you know, and then he did break through, and I'm, I'm not a, saying... he was an established politician. He was an established, but yeah, and he, he came he came from that party structure, but so will quite a few people who work, uh, if this does take off, so will quite a few people there. But I mean, is, it, is this a people's front of Judea issue that we... I mean, do you sense, because there are so many groups now, not all parties, <laughs> some parties, some <laughs> movements, some groups, some pressure groups. You know, do is it that we disagree? Because I don't feel the feeling that we disagree that much, apart from maybe between no Brexit or let's have another vote on Brexit. There isn't that much disagreement, is there? But why why so many and never getting traction? I think that's the, the, the answer is in the question, isn't it? Because so many aren't getting traction, so let's try another one. Uh, so it seems, yeah. you know, it's a sort of Buggins' turn sort of argument. I don't know about Ian. I suspect that we've almost bumped into each other in shady corridors where people, <laughs> where people have summoned us as, as, as heroes of the resistance to, to discuss the possibility of joining a movement like this. Or, or, or But to absolutely stress your point, I, I don't know if this party that's just launched is one of the ones that phoned me up six months ago to ask <laughs> if I'd be interested in getting involved so that kind of proves your point doesn't it so I think. you may or may not be involved I'm in not involved movement. in any of them but but I did speak to more than one well-funded serious operator who was talking about setting up a party just like this one but I don't know if it's this one or the other one or the one that was around last week but it's now gone mm. well there's something I'm looking into for a feature at the moment which is about this 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 idea that you know, how do you create something, if not unified, then a coordinated stop Brexit movement? And I spoke to Lord Malik Brown about it, and uh, and he actually was quite interested in what he called this ragged army strategy, and said that actually the answer is not, as many people would assume, a united front with a clear leader, but it was actually oh good all of these smaller things. And he'd been t he'd been talking to various sort of different different I think he's right actually. I haven't heard that analysis yeah before. so I'm kind of it's something that I'm kind of you both want it to be right and and but it is actually exploring a, I think the, the idea that it had not occurred to me that that could, that was actually a strategy yes. the political so, strategists around the world have used this as opposed to it just being this sort of incoherent tangle it's harder to land a punch on a, on a ragged army isn't it than on a, on a on a formal force well look at what the Brexiters have been yes. I mean look at during the actual referendum itself you've got the sort of UKIP wing mm. you've got EU and then you've got the respectable Tory to write guys you won't lose your house sort of Boris Johnson Michael Gove stuff that works really well for them but not just that 
look at now when we talk about you know single market and customs union that we're fighting multiple enemies yeah. at the same time the pro-globalization liam foxy let's you know t- liam foxy fuck me i'm <laughs> never going to say that again <laughs> um let's take down all the let's take down all the tariffs and just let everything free bollocks to the farmers lot are completely different to the let's protect our domestic industries don't let in any more immigrants lot mm. so you know no matter which attack you go for they, they seem to be in another place it doesn't seem to me to be a problem that there's been no central leadership however lord Manic brown is is sort of anomalous at the moment in that and that most of the remain groups seem to be co coalescing together under some kind of cooperative structure. Not exactly a centralised decision-making structure, but certainly much more cooperative than they were in Best for Britain, which... You need need a a, a car that Anna Soubry could sit next to Hillary Benin, don't you? Mm. you know, that's that's the problem that, that Malak Brown is probably addressing as much as as much as anything else, because there's no sign of that on the horizon. And if you remember, they used to sit together with the Open Britain. Yes, thing. they did. And then the election came on, and mm. all the Tories just left mm. as one. Because mm. the thing is that with most Tories, what they'll prize above all else is loyalty to the party. And if there's mm. any threat towards that, there's any sense that they don't have that, they'll be out of there faster than you can. Isn't see. that fascinating? So you look, if you if you think of the, the ragged army as a fractured movement and then what you've just said about the various wings of brexit so so, so, sort of from your minford madness right through to the relative moderates they're going to have to fracture now as well that's going to be the story the next few months isn't it because Mm. eventually there's going to be a plan Uh, impossible though it still is to believe there has to at some point be well this is what We've got guys. Well, that's the theory yeah. for why why Leave support has held up so strongly. Yes, is because they all still they think all they're getting what they want. Yeah. yeah, exactly that, and they're not going to. In fact, I don't think any of them are going to be pleased, potentially, with what's... I don't think anyone's no. anywhere's going to be pleased. Ever. Ever again. This is why we get on so well. Please, this very 2015, so we're not going to have any more of that. When you've got, when you've got whatever it is, the future of glorious regulatory alignment. Anyway, when you've got that, then you can go in and then you can say, if there's going to be a second referendum, what the question is, and also, almost as important, what the potential answers are. Because people at the moment, when they get asked, do you want a second referendum, a lot of them assume it's going to be exactly the same as last time. Mm. And a lot of people don't want that, partly because they feel it's disrespectful to you know the people who voted before, or, or themselves in fact, but but also because there ought to be more than two options on the ballot paper. You know, We've been saying this for a long time, because it wasn't clear what leaving meant. And now it will be clear what leaving means. We can have three. Um, and maybe that's, that's the way forward. Well, Renew was not the only new organisation launched last week. I'm sure nobody missed the launch of Artists for Brexit, a new umbrella organisation for creative types who can't come out as Brexiters because of the brutal Remain hegemony over the arts. They'd be bullied, pilloried and sprayed blue and gold by howling mobs of elite Europhiles. It's literally like being a gay man in the 1950s. (laughs) Artists for Brexit got a full page in the Times, which seemed a little much for a meeting in a Camden pub. The Sun said, pro-Brexit artists forced forced no less to form a union to stop lovey Ramonas. The Jim Davidson's a figurative art, is it? That's what we're looking at here. Bless him. And the Brexit press also managed to connect Leavers John Cleese, Michael Caine and Roger Daltrey to the story, even though they were not it will not surprise you to know in a meeting in a Camden pub and have nothing to do with artists for Brexit. Is there anything to this or is it just an attempt to to say there are creative people who I find it Brexit. I find it really sweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always have a sort of instinct of sympathy for, for people who are very, very unpopular within whatever their sort of group is. That's the, like, <laughs> it comes from school. Oh, no, you never yeah. 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 Um, and I just find it terribly sweet that 
Obviously, it's true that most RT creative types are instinctively against Brexit, but not just Brexit, that there's a more sort of open mindset, usually to that kind of uh, sort of attitude. There's some weeds that I don't know if it properly holds up, but you know there's some studies on you can predict people's politics by what they'll tell um, pollsters about how they feel when someone new enters a room. Oh, yeah. If they're in a group and someone new comes in, the people who instinctively feel quite negative and sort of anxious about that tend to be more right wing. And people who are sort of quite excited that there's a new person in the room tend to be more left wing. I don't think you can take this too far. And politics is about much more than psychology. It is not just that. But it's always interesting that there probably is some kind of underlying psychological disposition towards this sort of stuff. And as we've addressed many times whenever we've had stand up comics here, of, you know, how hard it is to find any kind of stand up comic that would be pro Brexit. And I think well, this sort of plays into Well, there's that. this phenomenon you find in, uh, with like, conservatives in Hollywood where they're in a minority in their industry at the same time that they're at the moment you know running the country mm. so they have this weird you know this weird sort of dissonance where they constantly feel like oh no I'm not allowed to speak and it's like well maybe not at this kind of particular Hollywood dinner <laughs> party but like in the White House <laughs> you can say these things but they get very aggrieved and a lot of the reason why people in those industries become more right wing is because of that feeling. I, I don't know if you noticed, but when people start, they start identifying as a sort of moderate conservative, and pretty soon they're just like, they, yeah, they've gone James right. Woods. Yeah. Yes. Because, James Woods. You know, they feel picked on. <laughs> you see the same thing actually in academia, it's quite interesting, uh, because it's, it's, for me, it's about idealism. A lot of these people are quite keen on building new systems, and they didn't like the EU necessarily because it was a load of givens and, and, you know, it created a structure which they didn't want to be part of and they wanted to think their way outside that structure and that was intellectually really liberating for them. Mm. And I think something similar may have been going on um, with these artists for Brexit. But we'll see what kind of structure they're interested in. It's a phenomenon that kind of mirrors this a particular kind of idealistic personality. Slightly exhibitionist, um, slightly maybe on the, you know, lookout for extra publicity, but also idealist. Well, what would this Brexity art involve? Because, I mean, presuming that actually when people talk about sort of anti-Brexit art, it's not like, you know, you can't go to the cinema without seeing some kind of film in praise of the European Union. <laughs> um, so it, it seems more like a kind of general sort of values. And if basically those values are kind of remember the war, yeah. weren't we great? Well, you've got, literally got two out of ten Oscar nominees, Best Picture nominees this year, are about, you know, about the Second World War. There are Sunday night telly, you could say, has got a kind of Brexity view of the, you know, the history of England. I, I don't know what Brexit, when they talk about, they actually talked about pro, you know, pro-Brexit drama, poetry and fiction. What? I misread it as dance and I really wanted to see <laughs> pro-Brexit dance. Um, and I just don't know what that would be, what well, that would I, be I, like. I presume it would be like mm. every other iteration of pro-Brexit ideas. What they really mean is that they should be able to do, say... Um, or indeed dance whatever they want yeah. and no one's allowed to laugh at them or criticize unless it's a comedy I suppose but no one's allowed to laugh <laughs> at them or criticize them or, 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 or point out that they're idiots that's all it ever means I've, I've spent 18 months trying to work this out there's no I mean pot of gold at the end of the rainbow when they talk about free speech they mean you're not allowed to to criticize me you're not allowed to reply I'm allowed to say really racist things you're not allowed to call me a racist when they talk about pro-Brexit they just mean please don't point out that I'm talking shit please let me carry on talking like this without saying hang on a minute give me some detail give me some evidence so how it translates into art which you would hope generally addresses the universal condition and empathy 
which is kind of the opposite of a lot of Brexit ideology, isn't it? It's about it's about being different. It's about saying, no, we're not the same. It's, it's the opposite of the, the European Union project, the notion that you stop wars by recognising that we'd essentially be killing versions of ourselves, and they hate all that. And empathy, I, I mean, art without empathy is... I, I can't wait to see it, to be honest with you. Well, they're all kind of... I mean, I read a piece by Lionel Shriver today, and she's kind of pro-Brexit and, and, and is definitely building a brand among... She's a brilliant example of, of what you were describing, isn't she? That, that academic desire to think outside the box and unpick stuff yeah. like that. She's a, and her novels are sort of... I mean, they do have empathy. Philip Larkin horribly kind of reactionary man there's there's also great empathy in there mm -hmm. yeah. i don't know whether these people are being stopped that's why i don't understand why this you actually have to be actively pro-brexit because then you end up like for some reason i've been reading like 1920s uh soviet poetry recently oh yeah um, in the original and, um, russian <laughs> and it's a man called sergey <laughs> A terrible you lurgy. went to the gulag and that was it. <laughs> it was, um, but it was, it's really bad. Yeah. Oh. You know, because <laughs> the, the whole, the, because as soon as you just go, oh, my whole agenda is to do, is to, is mm. to be pro this particular thing. Mm. It's not good art. And I don't actually think, maybe we talk about anti-Brexit, it's like Ali Smith's Autumn. It was a novel about Britain during Brexit. But it wasn't like banging the drum. We've all seen like really didactic, I'd imagine, left-wing drama and theatre or TV, where that kind of doesn't work either. So the whole idea mm. that you would sort of coalesce it, yeah, you're, to create it. the art. Like if you're an artist yeah, against yeah, Brexit yeah. and you, you want to stop Brexit because of all the ways it might affect your industry, great. But I don't think we've... I would hate the idea that there were loads of people so out right. there writing Romaniac I, drama. <laughs> it would, you know, which was just... fucking boring. Every scene was But that's the point there. then, isn't it? It's nothing to do with pro-Brexit art. It's all about pro-Brexit artists who are just saying, please notice me. I think there are some who might have, a bit, yeah, who might have yes. a bit of a, of a social mission. I mean, I think there are probably some out there who might say, I'm trying, I'm trying to project myself into this mindset here. I, I'm trying not to say they're going to just retreat into the pastoral or come out of Elgar. I'm, I'm I, I think there might be some who say, maybe we're ignoring too many people in this country. And that is a legitimate point of view and one that finds, you know, is, is uh, and if you look at art that way and you look at the, you know, empathetic, values of art in that way you could start taking a maybe i don't know ls lowry kind of approach mm -hmm. are you are you actually depicting um working classes people who are less well off or or has art become too elitist i hate to use that word but they might argue that um they maybe this there's is a that very very generous quite a stress i know i'm i'm, I'm trying to be empathetic. Being very lovely today I'm, i've noticed ross is very i'm trying to, i'm <laughs> i'm just like a know. like a like corbin about the checks no, iron fist <laughs> <laughs> Look, if, if they bring out a book of brexit poetry though we're going to read it on the show like, yeah, there's no way we're... Avoid no. I mean, all poetry is dreadful anyway, but like, nevertheless, Brexit poetry... Glory, glory. It'll be worse. like North Korean stuff, you know. We must harvest more rice for the great... But you see, this Never is, let our boxers touch. <laughs> to tie you two together, that's kind of the point, isn't it? Is that we would find it hilarious and they would think it was brilliant. Mm. And that's... I don't know whether I like the use of the word elitist in this context because you're pro-Brexit... Um, propagandists have put an immense amount of effort into trying to de debase intellectualism and debase intelligence, uh, knowledge, all of these things. But actually, th there are people who would stand... I mean, J Jacob Rees-Mogg, when he was at Eton, used to stand up and salute when the national anthem came on at the close-down on Radio 4 and his double-breasted pyjamas. He'd stand up and salute. Now, we find that absolutely ridiculous. Some people think that's brilliant, and I don't know that this twain is ever going to meet. <laughs> Are there any examples from history where we laughed at people who like saluting and it turned out badly? <laughs> <laughs>
finally, the week will be incomplete if Theresa May hadn't been shoved around at the bus stop and robbed of her dinner money by Brexit fundamentalists. This week, a hapless PM received a helpful note from the Tories' European research group ahead of the so-called war cabinet meeting. War! Where she will finally set out the UK's goals in negotiations with the EU Commission. Demands with standard stuff, full regulatory autonomy. Uh, new trade deals immediately, any implementation period to be based on World Trade Organization rules, and unlimited jam pudding all round. Nicky Morgan called it a ransom note. Uh, Ian, this is, this is the stuff they've been banging on for ages. Uh, what's the timing of this menacing ultimatum? So they've chucked in a few more mad bits, actually, because there's a, there's a bit at the beginning goes, well, we're going to go off and do our schedules at the WTO on our own. That's the first bullet point they have, is that. It doesn't make any fucking sense at all on any uh, level no, no, I mean, it's, it, it, it's ignorance well, of everything you couldn't possibly your, your trading partner would have no interest in talking <sighs> to you excluding the eu if you're trying to work out it's like if two people have a sandwich and you've got to give some of it to the third guy there's no point having the conversation excluding one of the first two people you just can't do it it mm. doesn't work logically it wouldn't work strategically and it certainly doesn't work morally or economically so that is just i mean the the, the interesting part is the additions that they've added to their requests suggests that they fundamentally don't understand what they're talking about. But then you wonder, why, why even put it in there? And how many? How can there be 62 people all go, oh, yeah, good one, put that down. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Without any of them ever going, no. That's, <laughs> it's it's 62 of them. It's unbelievable. But, but we know they don't understand stuff like the customs union. So, you know, of course they just let it go. Is this, who's, who's the audience for this, Ros? Do you oh. think that it's sort of aimed at... It's the, the believers, it's the true there. believers, isn't it? You said something. Sorry, Ros. No, no. I mean, uh, who's the audience? It's, uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of throwing around some uh, quite complex terms to try and show they've got a mastery of what's going on when they haven't. Uh, it does. It is really hard for the average human being to understand. Even someone who thinks about Brexit a lot, like I do, had to look up some of this stuff. And then I found, like, as, as, as Ian says, that it doesn't necessarily make any sense. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the optics, isn't it? <laughs> the funny part, I mean, they, they were just sending it directly to her. I mean, yes. this was, of course, only came out like a few days afterwards. So really, it was a leak. And that's interesting because it sort of shows you they know there's this checkers away day that's taking place sort of at the end of the week after, you know, these series of speeches. I mean, we had David Davis do a speech this week. It was just fucking pointless. We, we look awful the, the, as well. He, he, he is aging discovered very quickly indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I guess this was the last attempt to just force her into a position before that away day takes over. I mean, I think Nicky Morgan's right to call it a hostage note. That is basically what it is. It's like, do what we told you to do before you shut those doors. I think this is their last their last fire. Do you? I, I, I just wonder whether we're now in a cycle of constant postponement. Because all they've got now, this rump, is time. Eventually, reality's going to have to bite. They're going to have to... Like that Twitter exchange or that WhatsApp exchange with Nadine Dorries when she... Uh, because she thought she was in private, she admitted she hadn't got a clue about anything. I don't know what the customs union is. So someone explained to her, and she said, "Well, that's very complicated. I'm glad we're leaving it." Um, <laughs> so, uh, and you see, we that's, laugh, and I, that's and I, I, I did about de- surgery. I, I, well, precisely, <laughs> but I did. I, obviously, I, I delivered that, intending to make you laugh. Yeah, but if yeah. you stop and think about it, the justification for doing something huge is her failure to be bright enough to understand it. And I think, and that's why I worry about some of the names on the list because they're not all, they're not all Dorries. The the the, the the, the only option they've got left is either to put their hands up now and say, and no one's done this yet, and say, whoa, sorry, all right, sorry, we, we buggered this up. Maybe it could have gone better, but it, we... And I, the only alternative is to come up with something else. So it's like the poker game. Everything is on the table. They've got, they've got, they've got pocket twos, and they know that now that, that Juncker's got or Barnier's got 
probably got a full house, mm. but he's certainly got three of a kind. We've got pocket twos. We've got everything on the table. What do we do? Do we fold and show them that we only had pocket twos all along and all those people who've given us money to invest in this poker game are going to be absolutely furious? Just think of the size of the egos that are involved. They're huge egos. Do we, do we fold and show our pocket twos? Or do we go and empty the kids' piggy banks? Do we go and get the, the, the keys for the caravan in Bogner? Do we go down the back of the sofa and pull out all the coins that we've just got to keep putting stuff on the table because we can't show them our pocket twos? This and is, that, that's it. That's all I've got. There's a lot of detail in this analogy. Isn't I, I, sort of I spend a lot of time coming up with analysis. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, a very... I mean, look, imagine that you're yeah. Theresa May. You see that thing. You've got, what, like 65 guys on the one hand, on one wing of your party. On the other wing... You've got, what, 12, mm. 20, 25 at most? You know, the sort of Dominic Greavesy kind of Anna Subri kind of guys? You've got to factor them all when you think, what is the call that she's going to ultimately yeah. make? She's going to have to make a call at some point. I mean, I, just in terms of the arithmetic, in terms of her own internal position, when you get letters like this, it will matter to her that they are doing this, and it will push her towards a very, very hard interpretation of Brexit indeed. I would, just one caveat on that, is that you could tell in her speech that she made in Germany over the weekend, she was really smudging away at her red line on European mm, Court of Justice stuff, yeah. which would allow us to be in some agencies. If you looked at David Davis's speech, pretty sort of nonsensical though it was, you could see some space there for us participating in certain agencies. My hunch is that's where she wants to be, but given the sort of numbers that are being presented on one side and not really on the other, I don't think that's where she's going to end up. I, I, I wonder, because the, this is where the council elections are going to be really interesting, because mm. of course the, what, the, that majority you describe as being on neither lunatic fringe, or neither fringe, it's not fair to... to Call the um, Remainers lunatics. The the <laughs> not on this show. No, clearly. <laughs> but the, 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 no, I just, the, the point is that they're going to look at their seats, and if they get yeah. crucified yeah. in the council elections, yeah. then they are going to start leaning towards the moderate wing. They are going to start possibly even contemplating calling the whole thing off. Certainly weighing in behind soft as possible, please, because it looks like that's what the country wants. And that oddly puts the Parliamentary Conservative Party where I suspect Jeremy Corbyn has been for the last 18 months, which is waiting for the needle to move and then yeah. deciding on what the policy yeah. is. Well, as you've heard, we've got James O'Brien on the show this week. His daily phony shows on LBC from 10am are the very definition of getting out of your cosy echo chamber and engaging with a full gamut of opinions, rather him than me. <laughs> um, James stepped down from presenting Newsnights so that he could remain free to criticise Brexit, leading The Sun to call him a professional lefty propagandist. Afterwards, James tweeted, the thing Brextremists really can't compute is me being prepared to compromise my career for principles. Mm. Um, presumably this was not something... <laughs> a <laughs> <laughs> a hasty decision. No, it wasn't. And, and I mean, it also, much as I'd like to stand here and say that my poor children haven't eaten since sort of January, and <laughs> it, it, I wasn't presenting it that often. I mean, it, for a journalist, it is obviously a huge honour, and the people that work there are among the best journalists in the world, let alone the country. But the the way it works is that the the pro Brexit or the UKIPI or the hard right, alt right, far right, they they are weaponizing complaints. It, I think it explains why the BBC has, has got itself into such a mess with regards to balance. It begins with climate change and it leads inexorably to Brexit. And you see a lot of the same faces, most obviously off the top of my head, Lord Lawson, popping up in, in both camps. And if I am outspoken outside of the BBC, even on Twitter, I think they got more complaints about my tweets than they did about my radio show. They don't know how to respond. And, and it's not their job necessarily to manage me and my incontinent gob. So I simply realised that if I wanted to carry on shouting the odds about Brexit, I couldn't carry on expecting 
the Newsnight editorial team to be fielding rabid and repeated complaints, including from some very well-known people, about someone who was only doing the show two or three times a month. So it was a deliberate decision. It was a one taken reluctantly. But the way it got portrayed was a little bit... It was my fault. Um, the way I portrayed it was, <laughs> was a little bit highfalutin. But, um, but, it, but, but it is all true. Yeah, exa- exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. Slinking, <laughs> slinking away. Never working again. I've even found frying fish in Soli Hull. <laughs> back end of 2027. I, mean, I love my job. And, and, and Newsnight was like a cherry on the icing on the cake of my professional life. Do you life. think that, that in many ways, I mean, it's, it's not just about Brexit. I think it's probably, I find it worse with reporting Trump that... Mm. Oh, well, that was the other the, thing, the, actually. It was, it was Trump and Brexit that I felt. The BBC's impartiality, yeah. commitment to that, they're kind of struggling to get that right in the current political and media landscape, you know, dealing with various kinds of pressure and criticism. Yeah. And so they do end up getting... The people they get on to defend Trump are the, often, like, the worst of the worst. Yes. And they'll regularly hear, like, Ann Coulter or Seb Gorka and you're Roger like, Stone. Yeah, and Roger Stone. And, yeah. and it's just like, I'm not sure that this was kind of what Lord Reith had in mind. Well, I think we could probably all agree on that. The, the 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 problem I suspect is that you don't really know what balance means in the context of the madness that we've seen in the last two years. So Donald Trump does something that is clearly racist. The BBC mindset is, well, we need to get someone who says that it isn't. But it, it just is. I mean, it's like getting in someone who's going to tell you that, that, that gravity doesn't work. And th- these are exaggerated examples, mm. but I think that's the heart of the problem. So you end up then having, well, who can we find that thinks gravity doesn't work? Well, let's get Ann Coulter on. Let's get Roger Stone on. Let's get, get that Gorka guy on. And I think most of us, and I know a lot of people who work at the BBC worry and fret about this just as much as, as we are now, but they don't have the answers either. They're not plumbing geniuses and magicians. Well, what is the answer? You're having a debate about Donald Trump. He's just said something that can be construed in no other way as being broadly supportive of white supremacists. But they need someone on who says it isn't, because otherwise it's a debate about how racist he is, mm. which is the debate they should be having. But they haven't they don't know how. And, and that's why I always use climate change as the example, because you've got 99 percent of the world's scientists, let's say, for the avoidance of, you know, and then we've got to give the same amount of time and space to Nigel Bloody Lawson. And it's quite incredible when you think of it like that. But in their minds, and this is Reithian, oddly, I just guess he was legislating for a slightly less mad world. It, 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 the Reithian ideal would be that, yes, we will represent both positions. And my response would be, well, even when one of those positions is balls out bonkers, and they, at the moment, haven't got a response, except, well, well yeah, I guess we, we have to. I think that's what's happened. But, I'm just, you know, it's just, just little old me. I, don't. I remember you saying that you were, that during the referendum, actually, you were not <coughs> explicitly no. kind of pushing the the remain I line. I wasn't qualified to vote, Dorian. That was the thing. Like every other <laughs> bugger in the country, I shouldn't have been allowed near the ballot box. I didn't. I, I was completely ignorant. I thought. Also, at the time, I was quite keen to try and keep both balls in the air. I thought it'd be quite cool to be a sort of gobshite in the morning and then go and be all clever clogs and donish on on BBC Two in the evening. It was, it was a sort of dream little <laughs> double. And so I, I was <coughs> scrupulously perhaps impartial on the radio and it was one of the stupidest things I've ever done because I would sit there thinking well that's just 
that's just nonsense. And then I'd think, oh, you clearly don't know enough because someone clever like Daniel Hannan, remember that when we used mm. to think <laughs> that Daniel <laughs> Hannan and someone clever could be said in the same <laughs> sentence with a straight face. I used to think, well, someone clever like Daniel Hannan has said it. It can't be quite as insanely stupid as it seems to to this bear of very little brain. So my impartiality was built on a weirdly modest ignorance. Whereas now, having been on a crash course in all of it, you realise that that should never have been conducted in a balanced way. You should have said, here is one mad economist who thought the poll tax was a brilliant idea and all manufacturing and farming in this country is going to disappear the minute that we leave without a deal. That's him. He's the only pro-Brexit one. And here's every other economist in the land, pretty much, who thinks he's mad. And that's how it should have been done. But I, I guess if they'd done it like that, then what would Mr Dacre have done? Which is also a question that lies in the back of too many minds in this country. When Brexit comes up on the show... Mm. Uh, do you find that the conversation has moved on much? That when you're talking to um, a sort of an adamant Leave voter, are they saying different things to what they would have been saying? They don't ring me anymore. Two years ago, I have, I just oh. in the last few months, the really, the, I mean, the ones who will try to say we're taking back control because they know I'll ask them what control means. They know I'll ask them why Belgium can have much more stringent immigration regulations than we do. They know that I'll say, what is this law that you can't wait to be able to ignore that you currently have to obey? They, they know now. So there's been a shift in that sense that the, the detail has cut through. Um, but how broad that is beyond my audience, I don't know, you see. So the ones that ring me up now will either say sorry or we're not going to agree on this. I still think it's a good idea because I think we're going to have 15 years of... This is the thing that makes me chuckle. I knew all along we were going to have 15 years of mild economic harm and at the end of that we'll have this glorious new dawn so there's a bit of their own expectation management gone on but in right. terms of the really really rabid ones i i just think they they've lost it you've you've crossed swords with your fellow lbc presenter nigel farage a lot we've all seen that clip when yeah what makes but what makes farage so credible and appealing to quite a lot of people because i've never seen it but to quite a lot of people he does have this straight talk. What, what, what is the secret of Farage's success? Plausibility and, and utter, utter um, fraudulence. So he, he will, in the same way, he could sell you Nelson's column. He's one of those people. This is a man who lied about an assassination attempt. He lied through his teeth, through his filthy yellow teeth. He lied <laughs> about an assassination attempt. And, and, they, and, and then he waltzed away from it. It said that the mechanic had told him in France that someone had fiddled with his wheel nuts, if you pardon the expression. <laughs> and, and, and we checked in that. I say we. I, I was in this curious position where the French journalists who were following the story got in touch with me privately to say we found the mechanic. And, and he says not only did Farage couldn't speak a word of French, so he was just standing in the corner of the garage waving his arms around and smoking, the mechanic explained that this was a bad job done by a previous mechanic and yet on the mail on sunday a week later it was an assassination attempt and for his followers it still is and then and then all the other lies you know but my favorite lies probably one about me in a book that he wrote where referring to the incident you, you described the interview such as it was that you described oh, well, of course i knew o'brien had a complaint against him upheld by ofcom for, for saying something about ukip and it's a good ofcom complaint it's a useful one because it, it, it it's it sets a precedent. You can't mention a by-election on the day of a by-election on broadcast media. It's just one of those rules. And I did. I said, there's a by-election in Clacton today. 
that is probably going to be won by an anti-immigration party, despite the fact that, according to the last census, 97 point something percent of the population in that constituency is, is indigenous British. And that's, that's, a, that's a stone-cold complaint, right? That is absolutely banged to rise. It wasn't particularly anti-UKIP to describe them as an anti-immigration party that's about to win a by-election. But the rule I broke was that you can never even mention the existence of a by-election. The problem with Farage's claim that this was something he knew before he came into the interview with me where he humiliated himself so badly he had to get a free... I presume he didn't pay for the full-page advert in the Daily Telegraph the next day in which he apologised because his friends, the Barclay brothers, his fellow um, doughty anti-elite crusaders who own the Ritz Hotel, <laughs> they, they, would have, they would have presumably given him a freebie as, as I believe they did for his 50th birthday party at that hotbed of anti-elitist um, <laughs> activism, the Ritz Hotel. And, and the problem for him and his claim that he came into the interview with me knowing about that Ofcom complaint was that the Ofcom complaint was about a by-election that happened nine months after he came into my studio to do that interview. Mm. So he sits in front of his typewriter writing something, thinking, well, Christ, I'm going to have to mention this. How can I possibly spell Oh, oh, God, that's it. There was that Ofcom. I don't know in his tiny little mind whether he goes, but it was nine months later. I'm literally claiming I knew about something that didn't happen for almost a year until after the event. And I don't think he cares. I don't think his mind works like yours does. I think it just thinks, can I get away with that? Can I get away with it's that? It's the Boris Johnson thing about sometimes... It's much you, worse If you, than you lie so much, yes. but you do actually wonder... Like, yes. We were talking earlier about this unfortunate tendency we have of like trying to work out the psychological motivations of people we hate. Yes, yes. Um, but you do wonder, if you lie so much, do you even remember, do you even have a clear sense in your head of, like, this is true, this is a lie? I don't think you, you just do. just go, I think this would be useful? And then push on. And then yeah. push, well, we don't want to talk about that anymore. And, and, and they let you. This is the astonishing thing. Is, uh, you're right, not just him, but, but the others as well. They, let, they get away with it because there is a charisma there, whether, you know, it's a difficult thing to, for, for people to acknowledge or not. Charisma is, it's clearly there. The weird ones, these, these heroes of the vaguely fascistic alt-right far-right whatever you are the heroes are the ones that can talk to women I don't, I don't know if anyone else has ever picked up on this Donald Trump is an is a absolute poster boy for, for men who can't talk to women Farage absolute poster boy for men who can't talk to women <laughs> Boris Johnson now the Conservative Party family values all that sort of thing the man's got you know love children coming out of his ears but he can talk to women and all of these weird right-wing inadequates give them a free pass on everything because they say God He's, he's, he's as bigoted as I am, but he can talk to women. <laughs> and Dacre, Paul Dacre, the best example ever of a man who just hates everyone who can talk to women. Unless, of course, he's barking orders at them and, and, and calling them the C word in conference. That interview you did with Farage, I mean, one of the things that was noticeable about it was that it was very well researched. Mm, it wasn't, though. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you, you could have done that. You'd have had the stuff. I, there was Alex Andrea who'd written a piece for the New Statesman about some of the clusterings in the European Parliament. I was across some of the more recent stories involving councillors claiming that, I don't know, floods had been caused by gay marriage or whatever it was. It was all just there. And, and we didn't know he was coming in. It was, it was it's just a long time ago now, but I do remember this bit. We didn't have much to talk about. I went to the loo. I had quite a thrusting young producer at the time who, because who, who, Farage had said something on someone else's show on LBC. Someone rang in and said, this guy O'Brien keeps calling you a racist and he keeps doing it. Oh, I challenged James O'Brien to a debate. And I'm like, oh, shh, sod off. I've got my own things. So this producer, while I was in the loo, phoned him up and said, we're getting a lot of people wondering why you're bottling this, uh, this chat. So wheeled him in like a guppy. 
<laughs> I come back from the loo. It says, oh, Farage is coming in at half past 11 today. This is about 10 to 10. We go live at 10. And I'm like, oh, for crying out loud, Michael. I've, I, you could have warned me about it because you'll be fine. You'll be fine. So he comes in, he sits down, and I'm just, just all there. It's, all, it's not research. It's all, I've printed out some of it just to remind myself. But I'd been following it because whenever the supporters of UKIP rang me and told me stuff, I checked. So I knew it was all bollocks. But do you feel like, cause we've been talking about this a lot, that the, the sort of problem with, with journalism, particularly broadcast journalism at the moment, is that you, you'll be listening to an interview on, for example, the Today programme, and somebody will say something which is blatantly yeah. untrue, yeah. and they're not challenged. Yeah. And I don't think that that's necessarily because the host is trying to be soft. It's like they don't have the fact. They don't know. And, and this makes go, me scream. That's not true. This makes me scream because it's not rocket science, and you shouldn't really, and I'm not going to mention any names at all. I'm really not. But you should not be doing that job if you can't say bullshit. And and Andrew Neil did it brilliantly today with Steve Baker. Yeah, and and it was yeah, and it wasn't a detail thing. It was just a refusal to let them move on. And what Farage does that's brilliant is he just he sets the agenda for the interview always, except that except that one with me where where he wasn't allowed to. And I don't understand that because it's not hard. These are you know generally quite pathetic individuals who are used to getting their own way and the slightest pushback and they crumble like like a house of cards there was a similar thing with eddie mayor with boris johnson if you remember about that time where again you just get them on the detail you keep them there so if it's not a research thing what do do you think it's about that they get sort of enthralled to the charisma of the subject or or? it's a good question that will be part of it i think it's also I, I, I don't know. Maybe you need to have a slightly monstrous ego to do it. I don't know Eddie Mayer very well. Um, I think he's the absolute don at mm. uh, 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 political radio. When, when I say a monstrous ego, you have to back yourself so completely. Because if you do that and you've got anything wrong, imagine what a muppet you make of yourself. <laughs> and, and they're picking over it all the time, looking for a mistake. So to go in and to stay in, and you try and prevaricate, you try and wriggle off the hook, and I come after you again, and you try and wriggle off the hook, and I come after you again, and again, and then again, like the Paxman Howard classic interview. You, I, I guess you just, you probably just have to be able to back yourself to a degree that's a little bit unnatural. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, that's all I've got. Hmm. You have to be so 150% certain that you're right, whereas... You know, they're doing an interview now with you. Ten minutes they've got the weather. Five minutes after that, they're doing an interview with someone else about something that's happened in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, after the ten, after the eight, we've got the big interview with the with the badger cull bloke or whatever. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So I, 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 to be charitable, I just think there's a lot in their heads. Well, you can't ask, you can't go... Is that bullshit? Exactly. <laughs> that thing you just said, exactly. I don't know. It <laughs> sounds like it might be. <laughs> yeah, you've got... They'll go, no, it's not bullshit. Oh, okay. okay, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> But Farage, is is he right? Because last week he was warning again there would be riots in the street. Well, I may be exaggerating. There will be civil unrest if Brexit is reversed. Um, You've talked to quite a few angry leavers. Is he right or is all that just bullshit? It's all nonsense. It's all part of the victim mentality. This had to happen. If we hadn't hired him at LBC, he'd probably be running for the leadership of the party again now because he needs to have the perpetual narrative of victimhood. It, It has to be you know, poor and poor, it would all have been fine if only, can't be in charge, can't be in power, can't ever do anything that would involve substantive decision making and policy making, it's, it's, it's the life of the eternal heckler and then this weird thing happened in June 2016 where the hecklers got, it's, and you always think of the picture of Govan Johnson, the morning of that speech is that was two hecklers mm. who'd been invited, not just invited onto the stage, but when they looked up at the microphone every professional comedian had left 
the manager had left, the stage manager had left. It's just them, the hecklers on the stage with thousands and thousands of people in front of them, many of whom are still cheering and still laughing at the hecklers on the stage. But the hecklers on the stage, you can see this in their eyes now. Farage, Johnson, Gove, all of them, they know. They know now. And that's why you reach for talk of civil unrest and you reach for talk of betrayal and you reach for talk of um, the will of the people and all this nonsense because the alternative is to say we we never meant to burn the actual house down. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wonder about just the way that the, the kind of the sort of culture is now, the way the discourse is, is that you're a sort of you're a great believer in this, uh, this sort of civil, rational, evidence-based mm. debate. Um, but I, I often find um, that people don't particularly want to engage on on that level or sort of give an inch. And there's an, uh, there's an idea that comes from, I mean, across the kind of political spectrum, but there's this whole thing about, you know, sort of real free speech champions who are just like, you should not try and shut down your Milo Yiannopoulos yeah. or you know those kind of people you know it's the marketplace of ideas and everybody should debate and sunlight's the best disinfectant blah, blah 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 and i've you know obviously been hearing this for sort of for years for decades um do you have you is your faith in the kind of efficacy of debate to inform perhaps occasionally to change minds you know but as a good thing hmm. has that been shaken yes, at all completely I mean, that's why i left Newsnight. Because I don't see the point in engaging in debates on the terms of the current terms of debate. You've got someone telling racist lies, being balanced out by someone mm. who is neither lying nor racist, and that's pointless because all you get is more people drawn into the seductive um, spell of the racist liar because it's the most compelling and seductive narrative that humanity has ever created. All of the problems in your life are caused by that funny looking fellow over there they're not caused by the people you're voting for the people in charge the people you're doffing your cap at the people you're tugging your forelock at they're not no they're fine jacob rees mogg but but but, but that that polish plasterer over there that's why your life's a bit shit mate and if you let that go unchecked and that was when i thought that british politics took a a really really ugly turn when when miliband's labor party started sort of flirting with the immigration rhetoric flirting with the with the nonsense that people's lives have been ruined by immigration people get paid less than they deserve because the unions have lost their power collective bargaining went out of the window in the early 1980s and bosses have been fetishized by successive governments both labor and conservative and workers have been completely forgotten but against that backdrop you do not have to be a racist bastard to to think oh i like this fella that's yeah 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 why why's he got a new car over the road why's why's she why's why's she got you know uh, new trainers she's latvian that kind of and it just takes seed like that and yeah i don't think there's any point debating these people because they're telling lies unless you do it in the way that we were discussing five minutes ago which is that you as an interviewer or as the interlocutor in a in a in a, in a two-way interview in a moderated interview you refuse to move on until they admit that they've lied or until they define the words that they've used whether it's control whether it's borders whether it's political correctness whether whatever it is i'm not going to continue this conversation until you actually define the words you've used or you admit that you just lied, which I can't remember the last time I saw that on telly. Within your show, I mean, there's there's sort of 
dialogue perhaps as distinct to debate sometimes yes. and there's, there's definitely some again some of the more aggressive free speech champions where they feel like debate is all about sort of crushing and winning J Jordan Peterson mm. is a good example of this recently where it, it's it is totally gladiatorial but your show there's this kind of opportunity for sort of dialogue and do you find that when you're talking to someone that, that there may be some disagreement but that's not that's not all that's going on. Yeah, it's I not hope just so. Your, it's very that, kind that you say, to say that. Cause you I, can move it that way. But you have to remember, an awful lot of hardcore Brexiters or, 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 or UKIP supporters, they would probably accuse me of what you've just excused me of. They would probably claim, because they haven't been allowed to come on and go unchallenged. If they've said something racist, I've made them admit that it was right. They, they, they think they hear something very different. They think they hear me riding roughshod over any dissent and insisting that everybody has to agree with me. I know that I don't. But I think it's important to acknowledge that they hear something very different from what you and I hear. So I, 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 my wife sometimes says to me, not so much anymore, which I think is probably a good thing. Might be why we're still married. She said, just because you won the argument doesn't mean you're right. And that kind of about five years ago became my new little credo in the back of my mind when I'm on the radio because obviously it's a position of immense power and I, I, not only have I been doing it for years, I've been, I've been arguing since school with pretty much anybody about pretty much anything and I am quite good at it so I get paid I get paid to argue with people so it would be a bit like you know me going out to have a kickabout with a professional footballer uh, it, it, sometimes mm. uh, except that they are much better at football than me I can't so I, I sometimes remind myself that I could win this argument now but it wouldn't mean I was right is it quite hard to access that sort of Zen. Intellectual, Zen. no, not quite. No, no, like the intellectual vulnerability. Man. Indeed, yes, I can imagine the humming now. Um, no, I mean, like sort of the intellectual sort of vulnerability of it. That basically, yes. when your when your role is to be quite steadfast in the opinion and to hold it there, then actually in normal life, that is not how we are. No, we're, we're much no, you're right, and it's important to be wrong. It says, do you not think that in normal life, a lot of these people are exactly like that? They are utterly immutable. They're immovable. Mm. They're utterly stubborn. As I, I've changed my mind on almost every major issue under the sun in the course of my lifetime but also in the course of my work as a radio phone host, I realised today when we were looking at the Corbyn speech about the press his, his dismissal of the Czech stuff and his um, changes coming at the end of the um, thing and I realised it was superb it's the world's worst <laughs> Jack coming. and Horry until that last bit <laughs> changes coming and, and I realised that and I checked on, on the internet because I thought I've, 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 I've imagined this but I did one of those Sunday morning shows with Nicky Campbell in 2011, and the panel was me, Max Clifford, Lindsay Nicholson, who was editor of the Good Housekeeping and, and a prominent, I think, a press watchdog board member, and Alistair Campbell. And, and I did become friends with Alistair Campbell in the ensuing years. But I had this flashback to me and Campbell going toe-to-toe -to -toe about press regulation with me saying, you've got to leave the journalists alone, and Campbell saying they need their wings clipped, They've got, they're out of control, and this would be peak hacking wouldn't it and and with max mm. clifford there as well and i and i, I kind of just checked and i thought christ you've changed <laughs> <laughs> and that's good <laughs> isn't it i don't know unless i was wrong now and right then in which case it's all gone horribly wrong i always get quite excited when i change my mind yeah yes yeah, so do i but that makes that's that i mean to use this word liberal that's because you think about stuff and if, if, if we have a little catchphrase on the program that there's no point having a mind if you never change it that's the end of the show. Thanks to our special guest, James O'Brien, for coming in.
Thank uh, you. Should we have a phone-in section of Romania? You're more reckon? than welcome to try. It'd be tricky, though. <laughs> 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 well, maybe leave that to you. Roz, Ian and I are off to gargle warm salt water, inhale essential oils, and practice our scales for Romaniacs live this evening. The lips, the teeth, the dip of the tongue. For this week's Euro sign-off, let's have a bit of Greek from friend of the show, Alexandreou. Our theme tune is, of course, Demon is a Monster by The Great Corner Shop, available in Download Store near you. And here's the traditional roll call of our Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Bruce Nicole, David, just David, probably David Davis, Ian Armstrong, Vicky Pugsley and Ricky Killaby. Shout out from me to Camilla Hill, Evie Von Berg, Dawn Renfrew, Paul Dost, Ben Hutchings and the lovely Maria who I met this week. And finally, thanks from me to Jesse Scott, Andrew Newton, Alexis Armstrong, Jay Wilder and Ben Marks. See you next week. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Ian Dunt. Studio production was by Jack Claremont and the producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.